You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Danny Petrasic, your host, and with me today is Dr. Ron Wilder. Dr. Wilder is an MD-PhD, and he is Vice President of Clinical Research at Macrogenics. Dr. Wilder has an impressive history, which I won't get into now, but he, among other things, was chief of a whole section of inflammatory diseases at the NIH for 25 years. Welcome to the program, Dr. Wilder. Thank you very much. When people present with type 1 diabetes, there's often a subject or a term that they use, a honeymoon phase. The honeymoon phase is a recovery of a substantial part of the cells that we've originally thought of as dysfunctional. So in the setting of acute decompensation of type 1 diabetics, glucotoxicity, inflammatory factors, and the like can lead to dysfunction of beta cells and the inability to produce insulin. If one can eliminate the glucotoxicity, etc., you can actually have a recovery of some of those dysfunctional cells and leads to the what you've called as a honeymoon phase. Some patients can get to the point they require very, very little insulin. Typical standard of care therapy, though, that period of time is limited in that the T-cell-mediated autoimmune attack on the beta cells is still ongoing. So ultimately, that honeymoon period, unless one does something, will go away. How long is it believed to last, that honeymoon phase where you could sort of persist with some beta cell function without intervention? Probably six to eight months at best. Rarely, you'll go a year. Could you tell us a little bit about what is glucotoxicity and how does it affect the beta cells? Well, this is not an area that I'm personally an expert at, but certainly as glucose levels are high and you have other metabolic products being generated, that will lead to dysfunction of the ability of the beta cells to actually sense glucose and secrete insulin in response to it. All of the detailed mechanisms are not totally clear to me, but it's a well-recognized phenomenon and contributes to this honeymoon phase. And it's part of the cells that we will ultimately reflect some of the beta cell mass that we want to be able to preserve permanently, not just transiently. So in this autoimmune attack, we'll have some beta cells that have already been destroyed, and then we'll have a population of what you described as dysfunctional cells. What is going on in those cells that make them dysfunctional? Is this autoimmune attack really such a slow process? Yeah, it's the inflammatory environment and the High concentrations of glucose, as you imagine, the beta cells have got receptors and they are sensing the external environment. And uh, when you get a mix of high glucose and inflammatory products in the vicinity of these cells, they are not dead. They just don't function normally to secrete insulin in an appropriate way. So that sort of suggests that if we catch patients quite early in the process and we have tight glycemic control, that would support the beta cell mass being preserved. Correct. But just glucose control doesn't eliminate the other component of it, which is the inflammatory factors in the vicinity of those beta cells. We need to do more than just glucose control. So you'll get some period of a honeymoon with just glucose control, but it won't be permanent. Now, maybe this is a good time. Could you give us a little bit about the mechanics, about the specific therapy that you're working on, this anti-CD3 therapy, and maybe just walk us a little bit through, like, how does that work and why you have trust in this methodology? 
Okay, well, this methodology actually addresses what in the immunologic community is sort of the holy grail. And the view is to check aberrant T-cells, T-effector cells that have an autoimmune target. In this case, it's the beta cells. And to check them through interrupting activity at their main recognition protein, the so-called T-cell receptor. So the antibody that we are working with binds very specifically to one of the peptide chains that's associated with the T-cell receptor and allows it to function. Our antibody has also been modified in its FC tail so that it specifically binds the FC receptor and the tail doesn't interact with FC receptors on other cells, which can be a source of adverse events and things that are unwanted. That also eliminates the ability of other cells to kill the T-cell that's bound. So the first part of this is coding T-cells. And it turns out the cells that get coded most avidly are cells that generate the effector function. We call them activated. That would be generating destruction in the islets. As a component of delivering a signal to these T-cells, those cells change. Some of them become unresponsive. One term we use in the immunologic community is become energized or energic. They lose their ability to respond to the target for which they have a specific receptor. Other cells actually go through a process of what we call programmed cell death or apoptosis. But this, in essence, results in a process that eliminates or inhibits the ability of these T-effector cells to do damage to the target. The other component, and they are linked, is that once this starts happening, one sees a dramatic increase in the population of T-cells we call T-reg cells. So the ultimate consequence of this therapy is to inhibit the effector cells and to expand the T-regulatory cells and reestablish the balance. This is the, in mice it's been elegantly demonstrated, this is a process that actually appears to be the normal mechanism for checking autoimmune responses of virtually all autoimmune diseases. In diabetes, what we're trying to do is check the aberrant reactivity to the beta cells and expand this population of Treg cells. And this has the advantage of blocking the ongoing destruction of the T cells without killing all of the normal immunologic immunity. So this is a immunoregulatory approach as opposed to what I would call a chronic immunosuppressive approach. So the hope is that these T effector cells that are the ones that are doing the most damage during this process, and then you sort of coat them with this monoclonal antibody specifically designed for that, and then you're hoping that things will re-regulate themselves. Given that, how often do you need to dose patients to keep them, let's say, therapeutic? Well, that's what we're still learning. And in mice, so there are, is a mouse model, actually several models, that have features virtually identical to the human disease. In mice, a course of therapy can lead to permanent cure. But a mouse's life is maximum, say, two years. In humans, it certainly looks like we can get benefit going out to two and three years with a single course of therapy. But it's also evident that there is a, once you get out to 6 to 12 months, that there is a slow decline. And so I think we are looking at 
further enhancing the therapy with additional courses. At the moment, the state of the research is we're looking at the consequences of repeating a course of therapy at six months or at 12 months to see how long this effect is. I think if we are a realist and people live a long time, it's probably asking a lot for a very one or two short courses of therapy to be forever permanent. But those are the questions that need to be asked. But we certainly are getting very substantial benefit going out several years with very short courses. I know you've been in at least phase one and phase two trials with your therapy. Is that right? That is correct. So give us just a summary of like what the optimistic situation is right now with respect to the therapy. Okay. Well, as I said, the therapy was not just crafted in isolation. This uh, has come on the backs of many, many years of study in in mouse models of a variety of autoimmune diseases, but type 1 diabetes has been the leading case. Essentially, the phase 1 and phase 2 studies that have been done have given us uh, great hope and provided evidence that what was observed in mice is going to be applicable to man. So, looking at individuals that were within six weeks of presentation of type 1 diabetes, we've had over 50% of the patients uh, show substantial improvement compared to a control population. Some of those patients, as many as a third, have got to the point that they could get by with a single basal shot of insulin a day, and initial therapies weren't pushing that. Some of them could have come off of insulin. As those early studies have been watched, as most of the studies were discontinued in terms of follow-up for two years, but some of the individuals where we have data are clearly showing benefit out to three years or more. All of this, though, has now led to basically our three ongoing studies in type 1 diabetes. We here at Macrogenics now are conducting a what we call a phase 2, phase 3 trial of our therapy, and this is now in the early stages of recruitment and studies going on globally. And we're hoping that the initial studies will be further verified and we ultimately can take the drug to licensure. Dr. Wilder, I want to ask you, going back to the therapy itself, has it been observed that the therapy distinguishes different demographics? For example, do younger kids respond differently than adults? The overall answer is that we have not seen any differences across age in terms of outcome, beneficial outcome, or risk. But having said that, our data sets are still, relatively speaking, small. So we're going to be looking at that, but we don't have any specific reason to think that a 10-year-old is going to respond any differently than a 25-year-old. And the data at this point in time do suggest that they're very similar. You're probably well aware that there are other potential therapies for type 1 diabetes that are ongoing. There are different clinical trials. Can you give a little comment about what the other concepts are and what's happening in those other potential therapies? Well, I think this whole concept of checking effector cells and expanding regulatory cells is really emerging across a variety of approaches. And I think virtually every therapy that one could envision, whether it be a vaccine type of approach or some kind of antigen-specific approach or other types of attacks directed at immune cells, all come back to this concept of checking the immune response and developing expanded regulatory function. 
I think the therapy that macrogenics is involved with, I think because of its history in mice, is at this point in time probably leads the pack. In fact, if you go through all of the various approaches that have been used in mouse models of type 1 diabetes, it's quite striking that the anti-CD3 type approaches are far and away the best characterized and the most extensively understood. But having said that, there probably are multiple ways that one could come back and harness these mechanisms that enhance normal regulatory mechanisms. I would very much like to thank Dr. Ron Wilder, who's been our guest today. And we've been discussing specific therapies for type 1 diabetes. And you have been listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Hello, this is Dr. John Bissler of Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And you are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals.